0: people will come to universities. But I think the big threat to the 40 or so public universities will be who else is going to compete with us in a highly hyper-connected global world.
1: Hello, and welcome to KPMG's Talking Tertiary podcast, where we reimagine tertiary education for a changing world. I'm Stephen Parker... KPMG's education sector leader in Australia. During this podcast series, we'll be talking about the key issues facing tertiary education with some of the leading experts in the sector. The voice you heard at the start was that of Professor Jane Den Hollander AO, the Vice-Chancellor of Deakin University. In this episode, I spoke with Jane on the 8th of April in Melbourne about changes in higher education during the nine years she's been a Vice-Chancellor and some of the issues the sector faces in the decade ahead. Here's the interview. Thank you, Jane, for your time today.
0: Great to be here, Stephen.
1: We share a number of things in common, I think one of which is that we each obtained our PhD from the University of Wales in Cardiff.
0: And what a great place that was for a PhD. It was.
1: Mm. Now, Jane, you're looking ahead to the conclusion of your term as Vice-Chancellor of Deakin University after about nine years in office. Mm -hmm. And before that, you were a Deputy Vice-Chancellor at Curtin University. So can I start by asking you, what are some of the big changes you've seen in higher education over that period before we start to discuss the future?
0: Look, I think the biggest one, if you look at it from the perspective of staff and the community, is the focus on employability and employment. And if you think about the massive demography change that we're going through at the moment, a big older population, many, many more people who are multicultural and not your standard Anglo-Celtic person going to university in Australia. And then to that, you add the technological disruption and the anxiety about the jobs of the future. You have a melting pot of opportunity and of threats. And I think that's the biggest change I've seen. When I arrived at the University of Western Australia, when I first got to Australia, it was a very nice place to be Curtin was a wonderful, interesting place where we had many, many international students. But the threats to cuts from government, the disinterest from the government, and indeed the community in funding higher education beyond where it is, has now meant we find ourselves in a very different place.
1: Well... um... In one sentence, I think, you've covered all of the topics that I was uh, (laughs) going to (laughs) raise, employability, demography, diversity, technology, the future workforce. So let's now look ahead. There's a new generation of vice chancellors coming Mm -hmm. into office, inevitably over the next decade or so. How will these issues play out for them? What will the specific challenges be, do you think, for them?
0: Well, first of all, universities are big business, Deacon is plus a billion dollars more. Mm. Uh, mm. Some of the two, three or four big large universities are two billion dollar businesses. We matter. Number one export earner in Victoria, number three in Australia. We matter to the economy of Australia. So making sure we do it well is absolutely central to what they do. How do you do it well? The community in my view, will see success as employability for the next generation who go through universities. Now, fortunately, I think for Australia, we're a smaller population, that will help with the technological disruption, people will have to be better educated than they have been in the past. And it will be a mix of technological skills and then those uniquely human skills of capacity to think, capacity to argue, capacity to problem solve, because they'll be working in a machine-driven world. So there's advantage there for universities. People will come to universities. What I think the big threat to the 40 or so public universities will be who else is going to compete with us in a highly hyper-connected Global world.
1: Can I pick up something you said at the beginning there about education, international education being the largest export earner for Victoria and the third largest for Australia as a whole? There is some debate at the moment about China. It's the number one source country. It still seems to be growing, but there are concerns of a geopolitical nature and a diversity Mm -hmm. nature. Mm. And of course, India is the second largest source country, although quite a long way behind, and that is looked to as the potential way of diversifying by many. Deakin University has a lot of engagement relationships with India. Talk to me, if you would, about India and its future.
0: You know, what I learnt when I was in the UK, when I watched the international education and in the Cardiff where our alma mater... I don't know if you remember when Nigeria collapsed and international education collapsed at University of Wales in Cardiff and the Vice-Chancellor lost his job. I never forgot that. I was just an ordinary, humble little postdoc. And then when I got to Curtin, I saw how good it was. When I came to Deakin, I said one thing. Let's try not to be a unicorn in any one country. Mm -hmm. And so we have India as 31% now, China as 29%. And then we have the rest of the world dominated by Sri Lanka, Vietnam, Philippines, and then the rest of the world. And that has given us a sense of confidence over the last few years that we're not as exposed to the geopolitical issues around China, which may be or may not be founded. That's not the point. My advice to new vice chancellors is spread your risk.
1: Now, on India, I know you have students, many students, who come from India Mm. to study in Victoria. But I read about a cloud campus. You are doing things in or... In okay. India or mm. at a distance
0: for India? So let's go to Deacon Strategy. Deacon Strategy is to be at the forefront of the digital frontier. Now, what does that mean? That means for us around access and inclusion, how we deliver education. We have a very large cloud campus that services Australia. It's about 24 25% of our students, of the 62,000. 12,000 or a few more probably, let's see what the census date says in Australia, use our cloud exclusively. One of the things we've noticed with India, there's two things we've noticed. Many students come here, but there are many qualified students who fall out of the running when they realise the costs, because it's not just about the fee, it's about living in Melbourne, in Australia, which is a very expensive proposition at the global standard. We also noticed one of the things we do in India, which is one of our research partnerships over nanotechnology and biotechnology, we have PhDs in country. And interestingly, the most successful applicants for that have been women. So by some counterintuitive thing, we didn't expect to see it, an unintended consequence. We have more women being educated at the PhD level in India than we expected. And so the question was, what if, we put some of our courses at an India price in the cloud into India in things that matter to them, and that's what we're trying now. I have no idea whether it'll be an outrageous success, terrible failure, or something quite modest and plod along. Time will tell. Talk to me in six months.
1: Well, we'll hope for the former. Can I then develop a little bit about digital technologies in mm. teaching and learning, not necessarily for overseas, but, but, mm, for but generally... To date, we've tended to think about digital learning as people staring at a screen. But obviously headsets are coming along, hologram technology is being developed, AI and smart bots are on the scene. How do you see digital delivery or learning through digital means developing?
0: I think all of those things will prevail. What you won't have is a book on a screen. The terrible days was just whack it into a PDF, throw it in the cloud and Bob's your uncle. It doesn't work like that. And certainly at Deakin, we have spent a veritable fortune on trying to improve our cloud experience. The cloud campus is an online for the vernacular, but we call that campus the cloud. Why do we call it the cloud? to differentiate that people were learning through a screen from Deacon, And other than that, there should be no differences between whether you're face-to-face or on a screen, except that in the cloud often you're there because you can't make class, so it's asynchronous. So how do we build in asynchronicity? And so we use a lot of AI, a lot of artificial intelligence in our large classes most particularly, constant, constant upgrade of the quality of the information and the quality of the assignment. And the assessment, because, of course, as you and I know, it's no longer about content. It's about skill development for a future job that we don't know what that job is, except that we know probably it will use the innate human skills, which most machines for the next 20 years still don't have. So it's a complicated business. It's not a cheaper business. You know, to your listeners, digital is not cheaper than face-to-face. Cheapest thing is get a thousand-seater classroom, whack someone in the front who's charismatic and give them a lecture. That teaches none of those people anything at all. And it's an expensive proposition to go to university. So digital is slightly more expensive while you start. There's probably a benefit from scale. Keeping it contemporary, keeping it relevant means you're always upgrading but it could be in the long run if you mix it with some face-to-face where people co-locate and do things, a much better outcome. We're not quite
1: there yet. And you use a virtual assistant, Deacon Genie?
0: We do. So Deacon Genie is a mobile... It sits on your phone. We haven't quite got to exams on your phone, but our student Mm -hmm. population definitely expects that eventually they will do their exams on their phone because why can't we? And it's an interesting question. Why aren't all of their exams in some kind of mobile environment where it doesn't matter how much access to data they have, have, they still have to think about how they're going to respond to whatever the assessment or assignment or whatever it is that is being used to validate skills might mean. So Deacon Genie is a perfect example of our use of student data. So we know things about our students because they've volunteered into the system. We know if they haven't used the learning management system. We know that they haven't accessed the references for the assignment. We know whether they've handed in the assignment And we can intervene with that and say, by the way, Jane, you know, you've only got another three days on that assignment and I see you haven't touched the references. It's interesting, you or I might say, oh, switch off our phone... There's another generation say, oh, yeah, I'll do that tonight. And so we see that as helpful. Then, of course, the next level, when you're going into retaining students to success, one of the things that the genie can do is if you got below a pass, you and I know that passing your first assignment is the best indicator of getting a degree, bizarrely. If you pass the first one, you have hope. You don't get humiliated or lose your confidence. So making sure that people do get that first assignment or assessment task whatever it is. And that secondly, if they don't do well, is to intervene as fast as you can to ensure that that person is either helped with whatever skill they're missing. And now the data can tell you whether it's a numerical or a literary skill or whatever it is and intervene. I think that that side of our business is now going to go to the top of everything we do so that we know more about you and your learning behaviour, not for anything creepy, but to help you get success and get through faster so you get to whatever it is that you want to do next.
1: Well, Jane, um, you've announced that you're finishing as Vice-Chancellor. <laughs> you're obviously still full of beans. What's the next step for Jane Hollander?
0: Well, I'm going to have a holiday, mm-hmm. you know, I think that's the first thing. I think, like you, I want to focus more on the things that matter to me. By definition, Vice-Chancellor's jobs are wide and broad. You know, I've learned a lot. I think it's time for me to focus on a couple of the things that I'm most interested in. Now, obviously, digital has been a big part of my life. I will go deeper into some of that, but I haven't decided quite what yet. And then I want to be a bit more outspoken on a few things about the way the world
1: is. More outspoken. (laughs) Well, I'm sure our listeners will brace themselves for that, but you've been a fantastic leader, a great contributor to the sector, and I wish you all the best in the future.
0: Well, thank you very much. I look forward to seeing you around on the other side, as they say. Thank you.
1: That was my conversation with Jane Den Hollander at Deakin University. We talked about a wide range of topics. Employability as a rising agenda within higher education, changing demography, people living longer, diversity, technology, its implications, its promise, the fantastic things that could await learners in the future using technology, how universities have been a melting pot of changing policies and rising challenges and pressures. And we talked about international topics, in particular the promise of India and the need to diversify reliance away from any single source country. Do send us your feedback, subscribe and rate us wherever you find your podcasts. You can also get in touch by email, talking tertiary at kpmg.com.au or on Twitter, I'm at Stephen Parker ED. And you can also find out more about our thinking on the education sector at kpmg.com slash au slash education future Thanks for listening and speak with you next time on Talking Tertiary